This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens for Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at current movies, either in theaters or on streaming services and elsewhere, and then connects them to films from days gone by. Either we look at uh, a genre that the film is in, or maybe something by one of the stars that's in the film, or in this case of today's show, the director. We take a look at the director's work, and this day we're looking at the films of Guy Ritchie who's got a brand new film called Operation Fortune, Ruse de Guerre, and we're going to look at some of the better known and some of the lesser known titles in his vast filmography. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a film enthusiast and freelancer here in Halifax. Hi, I'm Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I am the host of the Knox Office on CBC Information Morning, and I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And we'll be looking at the world of chavs and shivs and Bibs and all that stuff on the mean streets of London and beyond right after this. All right, Stephen, uh, today, as you mentioned, we are looking at the films of Guy Ritchie, um, you know, and uh, on on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears, and and this was was quite a pleasure overall. I would have to say, <laughs> for the most, for part. the most part, you know, I feel like when a filmmaker tills a familiar patch of ground, it's kind of easy to take their efforts for granted after a while, um, and even more so criticize them when they take detours off that property. Now, I think a British auteur, Guy Ritchie, has made his name with the British gangster movie, and he's done it quite a number of times, to the point where I think people are just like, oh yeah, there's Guy Ritchie doing another, you know, <laughs> movie about blokes getting together to, you know, plan a con or a heist or some kind of something. And, uh, Going back to watch them again, uh, you know, he's uh, – they're actually quite a lot of pleasure. There's a lot of pleasure to be had, I think, in most of his films. Uh, of course, he made his name back in the late 90s with Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, followed rapidly on by Snatch. Uh, another one of his that I really liked is Rock and Rolla. Um, you know, so, so these are movies – if you have seen them, uh, you know, then you know what we're talking about. If you haven't, then please check them out. We're actually not focusing on any of those titles, particular titles, because I think those are maybe the ones that are most well-known. For sure. There's no need to double down on Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. At, at this point, it's 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 the film that establishes reputation and, you know, his reservoir dogs, if you will, which I guess makes Snatch is, is Pulp Fiction. But I, I think that's maybe an apt comparison. He, I'm sure early on in his career, he was referred to as the British Tarantino. Yeah, and, and yeah for sure. I, I think that's a pretty easy comparison to make. But also, I think... Uh, for more than just the fact that you know the the, the films are kind of flashy and and are about kind of like hood culture and all that kind of stuff, but uh, he came along. I mean, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels came out in 1998. Uh, we'd already been through the cycle of um, you know the the early Tarantino films and then all the copycats that came out immediately after. You know, Destiny turns on the radio and Two Days in the Valley and Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. You know, like all the kind of Tarantino esque films uh had kind of come and were rapidly wearing up their welcome by the point that Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels uh did and then we saw the same cycle repeat in England where you know a couple of uh fairly inexpensively made uh films filled with colorful characters and and uh Cockney dialogue and all that kind of stuff were incredibly successful internationally and so of course then we got you know we got your rancid aluminums and your uh you know layer cake I guess which is 
still a good film. Yeah. But, but I, I don't know that there would have been a layer cake if there hadn't been a lock, stock, and two smoking yeah, barrels in Snatch. Gangster number one. Exactly. Yeah. yeah no, those, it's those true. Of them. It's true. But I, I think you could also point to the rich history of British gangster films. Oh, for sure. You know, and that's, I think, where uh, Richie has been inspired by. And, but he didn't just do that, as we will no. discover through this course of this episode of Lens Me Your Ears. He went on and he had a lot of success going to Hollywood with two steampunk Sherlock Holmes blockbusters starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law and Rachel McAdams. Uh, the villain from the first the first movie was Mark Strong, and the second it was Jared Harris as Moriarty. Uh, I actually rewatched the first one recently on an airplane and enjoyed it quite un- well enough. Like It reminded me that uh, Richie's confidence with scale and production and storytelling, and he He's um, he's someone who likes to put us right in the heads of his characters to see the world through their eyes. He also is someone I've noticed who is very fond of flashbacks to show us what a yes. scene looked like from someone across the room. You know, just like we'll we'll watch something and then then you know in the next scene we'll we'll hear a character talk about what happened and then flash back and then we'll see a different perspective that will cleverly show us you know what actually was going on. Um, you know, obviously, as as I mentioned, he especially likes his large ensemble male casts. Uh, his favorite thing, really, is to tell stories of a gangs of dudes, and he's quite playful about it. I do appreciate that Richie has a sense of humor that eases out even in his most serious material. Uh, but I mean, I wouldn't call Sherlock Holmes his most serious material. That's uh, no, no. you know, I mean, that is that is some really fun. Uh, I think I think maybe purists for Holmes might have been upset about it because it's quite different than a yes. lot of things, a lot of Holmes I'd seen before. But uh, well, Stephen, what did you make of that? I actually wrote a review of Sherlock Holmes, the first one, for a like a, a Sherlock Holmes newsletter. Of, of there's a Canadiana Sherlockania or whatever, like a Canadian Sherlock Holmes newsletter, and uh, the the East Coast editor uh, of uh, for that. Um, newsletter is a friend of mine who I, I used to work with at a certain uh, local daily paper and uh, and she was, we were also sort of mutual Sherlock uh, Holmes buffs as she as she and her husband were kind of like the head of the local chapter um, of, of uh, the Sherlock uh, club I guess I, I forget I don't know all the ins and outs of of local Sherlock groups but um, but the and they they picked a name after um, there was a reference to a Canadian bootmaker or something like that and that's what they took their name after because you always try to find like a regional um, connection to homes I guess and uh, oddly enough I went to a preview screening one of, you know when they used to give out free passes to like oh op- like preview screenings like the night before it opens or whatever and you get them from a radio station or whatever and so they showed Sherlock Holmes here, I think at Park Lane, and one of the cast members was in attendance, Robert Maillet, who plays the heavy dredger uh, in Sherlock Holmes. He's the one who, like, punches a boat. Oh, yeah, sure. I remember it. Big guy. <laughs> he's a big guy. Well, he's an Acadian wrestler from New Brunswick, and he brought his entire family uh, to the screening down from Moncton, uh, I guess. And uh, they came to Halifax for the screening and he was there getting his photo taken and, and did a little Q&A after the screening with the DJ and stuff. And But he sat directly in front of me, this huge monster of a man. <laughs> and he was like very apologetic for like, you know, the fact that he was, you know, I had to kind of look around him to see the film, but it was kind of an, an interesting 3D experience having the bad guy from the movie sitting directly in front of me at the screening. It's it's, it's the kind of thing that doesn't happen very often. That was a real treat. But I did like the film. I I, I you know I knew it was going to be that kind of a lot of the stop start slow motion 
whizzing camera kind of high uh, high energy direction that we were used to, which isn't necessarily what Sherlock Holmes is about. I mean, I'm a big fan of the Jeremy Brett series from the 70s and 80s. I think that's the ultimate portrayal of those home stories where they tried to get everything very as close to the text of the original stories as they possibly could. Uh, and that is my preferred um, presentation of Sherlock Holmes. But uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. I, I you know, I was... Uh, pretty iffy on Robert Downey Jr. as the choice of Holmes. Obviously, he's got marquee value, and they were looking for that kind of this kind of devil-may-care kind of approach uh, to the character. And, and of course, uh, the Jude Law was a terrific Watson where he's a man of action. I mean, that's one of the things. You watch the old Sherlock Holmes movies where Watson is kind of an old fuddy-duddy. He's got his mustache, and he's kind of like a, well, Holmes, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. or what, you know, all the, And he's kind of a... a Thunderhead. Um, he was a soldier in the Afghanistan war and a doctor. He's got to be an intelligent man and also a soldier. So uh, using that very logical um, approach, they came up with a, a Watson who's, you know, every bit Holmes is equal in terms of, um, you know, being able to take care of himself and figure his way out of a situation. And and also, you know, dashing in the books, he's, he's got an, an eye for the ladies and of course eventually gets married. And uh, and I, th- I thought that was a that was actually one of the better aspects of uh, the two uh, Holmes films. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the it's the bromance between yes, exactly. Downey Jr. and uh, and Law that makes the films work. Uh, I I had some also issues with Downey Jr. as the lead, um, and I don't have a huge uh, uh, love or passion for the Sherlock Holmes stories. Generally, I've enjoyed a number of the adaptations, but uh, but I was just it's to me it's a little bit like. Well, it's a little bit like if they hired uh, an American to play James Bond. There's just something there's something I can't quite get my head around and and I don't know that Downey Jr's accent is quite spot on for for some of that. Uh he has a lot of energy and he brings a lot of that kind of persona that he is well known for, but uh yeah, so there were two two of these movies. They make um, some big leaps in deductive reasoning. <laughs> as far as like he's able to figure everything out and he's never stymied and he just makes he makes connections kind of like Batman and Robin do in the old sixties. We're just like using the most tenuous of details. They can like web this, weave this web of, of deduction and figuring out things out of thin air. And yeah, he does that. And I'm kind of like, mm, I don't know, that seems a bit far fetched, but, <laughs> but it's just, a, it's just a way to get the, the plot moving along and which they do in both films. quite Yeah. Rapidly. And it has a great production design. I mean, you know, it, if it feels almost supernatural where you just kind of go along with it, there's, there's a paciness and a fun to it that, uh, that I really kind of admired, I guess. Um, and there's even rumors now that there is, uh, there's a third film that could potentially be on the way. Uh, I'm not sure how likely that is. It's been a while since the second one, but, uh, you know, if all the parties are interested, I bet you they could get it made. Well, it's not like uh, Downey Jr. is tied to Marvel anymore, so it's probably, you know, it's probably a nice payday for him and and uh, something he's comfortable doing. And uh, uh, Dexter Fletcher uh, is rumored, I think, to possibly be directing a third Sherlock Holmes film. He he uh, made the Rocket Man, Elton John movie, most notably. He's also an actor who actually appears in some uh, some Guy Ritchie films. Or yeah, Locked he, Stock. He was in that one exactly. So yeah. uh, there there's there's a connection there, and and. Uh, his current film ghosted is getting kind of slammed review wise. So hopefully, uh, this will be more in the form of, uh, 
of something like Rocket Man, which had a lot of energy and imagination. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Guy Ritchie, of course, uh, earned a lot of acclaim and, and box office for those Sherlock Holmes movies. He's earned less acclaim for some of his other work. Uh, his King Arthur picture was notably a bomb. Um, I watched that. I'll be talking about that a little later. And uh, you saw his movie Revolver, yes. uh, which I've not seen. So we'll both be talking about those independently, um, neither of which have gotten much love. We both talked about Man from Uncle, which was an adaptation. Uh, we we talked about it in our spy episode back in the early days of this podcast. I think it may be episode 15. That's really worth going back to listen to. That's one of our more robust uh, episodes back when we were less constrained by time. Yes, sure <laughs> and uh, and we could talk longer than just an hour. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a good episode. We talked in detail about uh, the man from Uncle, which yeah, we I've, both liked. I think a lot of people slept on that one because they just the the series has not been in part of the conversation for a long time. It's it's a show I was always aware of growing up just because it was part of the whole spy 60s spy canon, but it was never in repeats when I uh, was uh, watching TV. I think some of the episodes got stitched together into TV movies, like two-part uh, episodes became like sort of long TV movies, but I, I was not that familiar with the characters and I don't think I was alone in that one. And I think a lot of people just didn't bother with it. And it's a shame because it's a fun retro spy movie throwback with a great cast. Uh, if you can stand watching Army Hammer, uh, <laughs> which might be the one big glaring uh, problem with the film, uh, then uh, then you're in for a good time. I mean, Alicia Vikander, Henry Cavill's very good in it. And, and people like uh, Jared Harris and um, some other, uh, Hugh Grant's in it as one of uh, one of their handlers. So definitely a film uh, worth checking out. Yeah, it's funny how uh, Richie will go back to sort of stable of recognizable faces and actors. He'll work with them again and again, which I think is speaks to loyalty and, and the fact that his sets probably are pretty friendly. People get along. Um, you know, his next film is called The Covenant, which with Jake Gyllenhaal as an American soldier who returns to Afghanistan to save a translator. That feels like a bit of a detour, but not unusual for, for Richie to have these occasional detours into different kinds of material yeah that looks very promising i mean i saw the trailer this morning actually i watched it and uh and thought well it, you know Hall looks like it's he's giving a very dedicated very physical kind of performance it's it's dealing with some weightier issues it looks like uh you know post-traumatic stress uh is going to play a big part in the in the drama and treated uh, it looks like it'll be treated fairly seriously it doesn't look like a quippy you know, caper film where uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays a soldier, goes back to Afghanistan to save the life of the translator that saved his life when they were captured by the Taliban. So uh, I'm I'm hoping that that uh, proves to be a, a, a win for Richie and for for us of the viewers. So let's talk about his newest film. This is this is, film has arrived with a quite a bit of production, you know, hubbub. Um, it's a film that's been sitting on the shelf for a while, trying to find distribution, I gather, uh, maybe shot during the pandemic. It took a while to get to us anyway. It is yes. on now Amazon Prime. It's called Operation Fortune Rudiger. Uh, and I think it was originally mooted to be the start of a possible franchise. I don't think that's likely to continue no. based on what I've heard about it's um i guess uh, you know it's it's critical and 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 uh, reception generally but um yeah so uh what he's done this time out is mixed together his standard issue action hokum is a sprig of mission impossible international spycraft a splash maybe of the man from uncle irreverence you shake it up you've got something slightly fizzy and sweet uh i don't 
didn't find there was much weight to Operation Fortune, um, but you know, it's it's not without its flavor or fun. It's just mostly due, and that's the fun of it is mostly due to a, to a cast that seems to be having a good time. And uh, once again, uh, we've got Jason Statham, who is one of uh, Richie's favorite leading men in in the film, the Humphrey Bogart to Richie's uh, John Easton. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite a comparison. Well, um, yeah, that's, that's a stretch. Yeah, um, uh, the, he's a colorfully named Orson Fortune, uh, and it plays sort of a duplicate of any number of tough guy characters he's played in the past with his sort of two personality characteristics here being a suspicious nature and a fear of air travel, which is pretty much easily managed with a bottle of red wine. Very expensive red wine. Yes, that's right. Um, he uh, His handler, Nathan, played by a kind of uncomfortable-looking Carrie Elwes, uh, and his handler's handler, Knighton, played by Eddie Marzan, another regular of, of Richie's, they work for British Intelligence and they contract Fortune to track down a suitcase that has something valuable in it. Naturally, that thing turns out to be a threat to the entire planet. Um, and it's of interest to a couple of billionaires. And the man brokering the deal between this MacGuffin is another wealthy sleaze, Greg Simmons, played by Hugh Grant, who is adding to his growing catalog of charming baddies as in the recent Dungeons and Dragons movie and Paddington 2. Um, so in order to secure this device, unexplainably called the handle, Fortune practically abducts a Hollywood star played by um, guy, another Richie regular, Josh Hartnett. Yes, back to, again. Yep, to help lubricate Greg, who is a big fan. Um, and they're in the company of a hacker named Sarah Fidel, played by Aubrey Plaza, who's terrific in this, and another hard man named JJ, played by Bugsy Malone. They travel to Cannes and points east on their mission, and the film, interestingly, was shot in Turkey and Qatar, of all places. So it does have a really interesting uh, sort of geography and sense of location, which feels unusual for this kind of film. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I the, the plot, I guess I've described it for the most part, but uh, it's pretty fluffy, and all of that kind of detail is, is mostly unnecessary. This movie isn't much more than an excuse to watch Stath dispatch muscular thugs with guns, blades, and fists, and the rest of the crew make pithy remarks sometimes at his expense. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's <laughs> it's a fun movie. It's not it's not terrific, but I you know it's actually. Finding it on Amazon Prime seems like a, a good place for it because it's undemanding action comedy uh, entertainment. Yeah, I get the feeling this was made and then kind of sat on the shelf for a while and it was denied uh, denied a, uh, a theatrical release for a couple of different reasons. Politically, I think the bad guys are Ukrainians. So, so I think that um, might have hurt its uh, possibility of getting a wide theatrical release perhaps. Uh, and... Uh, it's it's not that big a deal. It's 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 kind of like MacGuffin the movie because they're really just after this thing that gets stolen at the start of the film that can, you know, has the potential to have catastrophic effects on the worldwide financial system and all that kind of stuff. But um, and beyond. But it's really it's it really has nothing. It's just the thing that the, the dingus that they're after and they need to get and. They need to get to the guy to get the thing and get the other thing. Anyway, it's 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 it felt very mechanical and kind of kind of rote. But you have to kind of find your enjoyment in it in in what the actors bring to it. I really like Aubrey Plaza here. She doesn't appear to be taking any of it seriously at all, <laughs> and reportedly was improving a lot of her her moments, uh, her reactions, and things like that are, are kind of 
uh, off the top of her head. I guess Richie liked her energy and let her kind of run with it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. And when, uh, yeah, when you think of the funny moments in the film that she delivers, it sound it feels like her. Yeah, and Hartnett, an actor I've been very cold to in the past, who suddenly did like suddenly became interesting. I think around the time of um, his. Uh, uh, Penny Dreadful. I yeah, think he, that was the moment, wasn't it? I think that I think so because he was such a leaden, stone-faced, uninteresting leading man. Uh, you know, when you think of films like uh, was it Wicker Park and uh, and then that horrible uh, adaptation of the Blue uh, the Black Dahlia mm-hmm. uh, by Brian De Palma from the from the um, James Elroy novel, uh, where he just he just kind of sunk the whole thing. And and I was just a uh, you know, and then he wasn't in anything for a while. And I was like, fine, you know, I think we've had our fill of Josh Hartnett. And then all of a sudden he, you know, he was playing Found work in the UK. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and getting interesting roles and, and bringing something to them that just had not been there in his work before, you know, and not again, not taking himself seriously and, uh, and playing characters with, uh, you know, weaknesses and bedraggled. And I think maybe he'd aged into his face a little bit more too. Like he, he has that, he looks like, like kind of like a young Liam Neeson a, uh-huh. a little bit now, as opposed to like the, the chiseled handsome boy. Now he's, he's got some, uh, some mileage on his face. And, and I think it makes him a little more interesting as a, as a screen presence in a lot of ways. Yeah, it does suit him. I would say. And, and I, I have liked the way that Richie has used him in, in at least a couple of his movies. And we'll talk about, uh, one that we watched together, uh, this week in preparation for this podcast. Um, and I like that Richie brings, you know, he's a fan of weird storytelling choices, like fortune watching, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid on TV and then having raindrops keep falling on my head score a burglary scene with him and Aubrey Plaza singing along um, uh, with with sorry with with the state and Aubrey Plaza singing along to that song. And, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd say that's an homage to Hudson Hawk. But who in their right mind would do that? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe Richie is a fan of Hudson Hawk. I actually have some time for it myself. But it's just such a strange decision. And I, I, I found, I mean, actually, I would have been been fine for more of that kind of goofiness to to you know, liven up this film at places. But anyway, there it is. Um, you know, in some ways, I think the Operation Fortune is more like a family-friendly take on on Matthew Vaughn's Kingsman movies. Uh, you know, it's all just basically like post-James Bond, like trying to find the playfulness in James yeah. Bond. Like if, if you grew up with, with Roger Moore era James Bond, then this won't seem like such a huge departure or, or maybe a more goofy Mission Impossible. <laughs> And welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. Today we're taking a look at some of the lesser known and some of the better known films of Guy Ritchie from uh, from the later part of his career, post Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and, uh, and Snatch. And uh, this is a film that kind of fell off the radar pretty quickly. It came out in, um, I think, 2008. Eight, I think. Yeah, uh, 2005. 2005. 2005, yep. Up by here. Um, and it kind of, it, I don't even know if it made it into many theaters. It's called Revolver. Uh, I don't know if that's a nod to to the Beatles albums or the, the, the you know, the weapon, probably a bit of both. And uh, it's it's an oddball entry in the category because on the surface of it, it looks like yet another, uh, you know, Guy Ritchie, tough gangster kind of picture with uh, lots of flashy filmmaking and, and, and quippy uh, dialogue, but he co-wrote it with Luc Besson and it's got this deeply kind of philosophical core to it that I don't know completely pays off. It's, it's a film that 
uh, is uh, there's two different cuts of it, both kind of equally confusing in different kinds of ways. And, uh, you know, it, it, um, it doesn't it feels like it doesn't need to be that way as you're watching it. It opens up with portentous quotes on the screen. You know, the, this film takes itself fairly seriously. And I guess I can understand why Richie would want to make a film that might uh, seem like it has a little more weight. So you get quotes by Julius Caesar. The greatest enemy will hide in the last place you'll ever look. And then there's references to chess. Uh, and of course, the, the logo for the film features the knight um, piece from, from a chess. And there's lots of references to chess throughout the film. Um, the first rule of business, protect your investment from the etiquette of banking. And then there's a quote by Machiavelli. There's no avoiding war, only postponing it to the benefit of your enemy. So, so they're setting you up for a, a big, uh, battle of wills. And in this case, the battle of wills is between Jake Green played by, of course, Jason Statham, who else, although this time with a full head of hair, which is kind of weird. Uh, you have to get used to that idea. And his, his, his nemesis in this case is, uh, is Dorothy Maka played by Ray Liotta, the character named Doug. Although most people, they just refer to him as Maka um, throughout the course of the film. Uh, they don't call him Dorothy. Um, sometimes they call him D, I guess. And uh, basically, uh, as the film opens, uh, Statham is getting out of prison. He's been doing time for a crime that he basically committed to, um, to help keep uh, somebody else out of jail. And uh, now he wants payback. And basically, he's a guy who has uh he's not even a real thug necessarily he's more of a gambler who has created the system they don't really explain the system but somehow he's come up with a way that he can win at almost any gambling game and as a result he's kind of you know he's actually kind of banned from casinos and he's not allowed to to use his skills necessarily however sometimes people hire him to use his skills it's weird it's kind of like Poker Face, uh, the TV series with Natasha Lyonne, who is banned from every major casino because she has a, a built-in lie detector. <laughs> and, and Statham is kind of the same way, but he's, he knows how to play the odds and, and um, play the game. And, and so he's basically working the game of, uh, of loan sharks and heavies and thugs to get back at um, Maka and put him in a place where, uh, you know, he's, he's, going to be uh, beyond uh, beyond help and beyond saving so the it's a one long con but it's there's a lot of internal monologue there's some indications that some of the characters may only exist in his imagination uh we have andre 3000 uh from outcast and vincent pastor big pussy from the sopranos they play a couple of uh very wry uh con artists who latch on to green early on and they're trying to get him to do their bidding um to to work some schemes uh while he's trying to work his scheme against uh against maka so there's many wheels within wheels turning here and uh although it's an interesting performance for statham i think it's it's you know he's he's definitely going you know reaching beyond his grasp perhaps uh with a character that's that has some serious psychological issues due to uh the things that happened to him before he went into jail uh before the events of the film get underway and and there's some interesting storytelling but there's also points in the film where you're it really does not uh, help figure out what's going on in the movie. And, and so it, it's not hard to see why it wasn't a big hit. And in fact, uh, Richie recut it um, after its theatrical release. And there's a, there's a different director's cut that actually lops off a big chunk of the ending that uh, involves Ray Liotta's character. And it doesn't necessarily make things any clearer. It tightens up the story a little bit, makes it flow a little better but it doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily improve things any. So it's I I would say this is for diehards only if you're a fan of Guy Ritchie's work, uh, you know, if if you 
watched all of his other films and are looking for something else with that signature style. Um, but I imagine uh, it didn't please fans of either Jason Statham action movies or, uh, you know, Guy Ritchie, uh, sort of more conventional plot-driven films. Mm, yeah, I've been, I haven't caught this one yet, so uh, so interesting yeah. to hear what you I didn't, your thoughts. Yeah, I didn't regret seeing it because there's certainly interesting stuff in it. And, uh, you know, Mark Strong is great as a hitman with a conscience who... Who, uh, who plays a crucial role uh, through the course of the film is, is a sort of deadly hitman who also, you know, refuses to to um, take that uh, one job too far kind of thing. And, and and there's lots of lots of atmosphere. It's ostensibly set in the U.S., but uh, it, it really is kind of in this kind of nether world that a lot of it is happening in Statham's head and, uh, you know, trying to figure out which is which it's, it seems like it's uh, the kind of thing that uh, maybe if Basson directed it, maybe it would have, uh, you know, with, with French subtitles, maybe it would have worked a little bit better, but, but here you're, you go in expecting something a little more clear headed and that's not what you get. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword from 2017, another one of Richie's films that did not do well. This was quite a bomb at the box office, actually. And and given the poor reviews that I read of this film, I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. It's, a, of course, his take on the Arthurian legend. He casts Charlie Hunnam as Arthur. Now, I've got nothing against Hunnam. I think he is a, a, a physical presence on screen, but I wonder about his leading man credentials. It's I feel like they tried something similar in Hollywood with, with Taylor Kitsch, who's also good-looking and charming and physical, but also maybe not someone you really want to cheer for, and I think that's maybe the problem with Hunnam as well. Um, anyway, here he is. He's King Arthur, and uh, this movie is set in a world of mages and kings, and in the first segment, which, you know, goes back to the time of Uther, played by Eric Bana, Arthur's father, feels like a particularly grim moment from Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. It has that kind of scale with giant magical elephants causing all kinds of havoc and magic swords. And this is a gritty but huge uh, fantasy material. And in typically pacey, richy storytelling, we get... Hunnam very quickly is the grown-up Arthur who is knows nothing about his origins. He's raised in a brothel in Londinium, um, but his fate comes looking for him. Before long, he's pulled the sword from the stone, and his uncle, who is now king and played with all kinds of delicious villainy by Jude Law, he wants him dead. Uh, this forces Arthur to join up with a group of outlaws. Some are arrayed <laughs> from his old days as a thief in the big city, and some who are just not fans of the current king. So once again, we get a gang of, of mostly men trying to mess up Jude Law's efforts to consolidate his power. You got uh, actors like Aidan Gillen and Jimon Hunsu and Annabelle Wallace. These are very solid character actors and many of them with Cockney accents. And all of a sudden, you know, in the middle of this fantasy movie, a Guy Ritchie movie breaks out. Um, <laughs> and you got some solid action scenes, some decent CGI and Arthur slowly coming to terms with his birthright. Even have David Beckham in a cameo. And he does actually pretty well. Um uh, and I, I do appreciate the tension here that at first, the you know, the last thing Arthur wants is this sword. Every time he touches it, he sees visions of his past that he's kind of locked away in the death of his father. Um, and it's uh, but it's it's good. It's emotional. It's it's well made. I quite enjoyed King Arthur Legend of a Sword. I don't think it's a classic, but as far as watchable, entertaining Arthurian movies go, I think it de definitely qualifies. It deserves deserves a better status, I think, in in that sort of genre than it than it has. And I certainly think it qualifies as a, in some ways, as a Guy Ritchie movie uh, that if people like Ritchie, they shouldn't avoid this one. 
I'm I'm curious about it. I did not see it, and uh, I feel like this came and went like in the blink of an eye. It did, and, yeah. And I, I yeah. imagine it lost somebody a lot of money. Yes. Uh, but uh, I, I look forward to seeing it. I like Arthurian films. Uh, we talked uh, the other day about uh, the fact I've been listening to a podcast called um, uh, Hollywood Avalon about uh, Arthurian legend as portrayed on film. And uh, this film has not come up in that cycle yet, but I'll, I'll look forward to to um, to watching this and listening to that uh, dissection of it by someone who's a little more storied in the lore than, than I am. Because yeah. I have a feeling... Uh, you know, I'm looking at the cast list. I'm not, I don't see the name Merlin here anywhere. No, he doesn't play really a part. He's more just a flashback. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's certain names that I expect to see in the, in a King Arthur movie. I'm not seeing them. So, but I do see an interesting cast and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopefully uh, not going to be put off by anything too anachronistic uh, over the course of this film. Yeah, no, you should uh, definitely check it out. Okay. And, and I mean, I think there was an opening for a sequel and maybe Merlin would have a Oh, know, I showed see. up there. Um, just like in the first uh, Sherlock Holmes movies, there was the suggestion of Moriarty, and a finally, you know, Moriarty appears in the second one. Uh, in fact, I think they were originally going to try and cast Brad Pitt as Moriarty, but Ugh. it didn't work out. Thank goodness. Um, anyway, anyway, let's move on yes. to The Gentleman, which is on Netflix, um, written and directed by Richie. Uh, Stephen, you want to, I've talked for a little while. Why don't you give this one a, a, the once over? Sure. Well, I saw this when it came out in the theater and uh, was highly entertained by it. I, I think I went in, uh, I, f I feel like he'd had a string of not great films at that point uh, when this had come out. Well, this came out after uh, Aladdin and then, uh, which we'll talk about later, and King Arthur and Man from Uncle. So he had kind of a string of, you know, not not great successes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes was, uh, was, was almost a decade in the rear view mirror, the, the second one. So... Uh, I went in kind of like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> it looks like, looks like a, kind of a, a dud, but uh, especially what's Matthew McConaughey doing in a Guy Ritchie movie. But as it turns out, it was uh, highly entertaining. And uh, again, using an interesting kind of flashback structure, like it has a bit of a tease opening with Matthew McConaughey walking into a British pub and there's a, we hear a gunshot and see blood spatter and then, uh, you know, then it cuts to black and then we don't know what's happening. Did somebody just shoot Matthew McConaughey? And then we get into the story of, of who he is. He's Michael Pearson. He's a, a Brit who went to England to become a Rhodes Scholar, but uh, instead uh, was more of a weed scholar and uh, ended up uh, creating this, uh, you know, fairly far ranging empire of uh, marijuana uh, production and sales. And he's uh, now looking at retiring. He's looking at selling off his business, um, to, uh, Jeremy Strong's Matthew, who's, uh, he's kind of the head of the, of the Jewish mafia. And he's looking to sell off his business for $400 million. But, uh, there's a bit of a complication in that, uh, London's Chinese gang want in on the action uh it was played by a dry eye henry golding who most people knew as the the handsome dude from uh, crazy rich asians here he's playing a a real jerk uh gangster uh, who's kind of second in command he's his his uh sort of senior lord george runs the the chinese gangs i guess out of limehouse or wherever and in london and um dry eyes trying to you know make his mark in the world and he figures by taking over uh matthew pearson's uh, operation uh, at at a bargain price, uh, he can um, he can uh, basically take over uh, that portion of the the crime business in London and usurp his uh, his overseer, Lord George. Uh, 
And uh, so you've got these multiple forces kind of coming together. Charlie Hunnam plays uh, Matthew's, uh, Michael's uh, right-hand man, Ray. And uh, the story is all told uh, through a series of flashbacks as dictated by a very sleazy tabloid. I, I guess he's a reporter. He's more of a, a sleazemonger, uh, um, paparazzi type, uh, played by Hugh Grant uh, Fletcher. Um Who's, uh, who's, it's kind of like a variation. I mean, this is before, uh, uh, Ruse de Guerre, but he's playing just a, as oily a character. Um, and he, he basically wants, uh, his cut, uh, of, of the sale to keep all this stuff out of the papers. Cause he's been following Ray and he's seen Ray accidentally kill the son of a Russian diplomat slash crime boss. Uh, and basically, uh, you know, Ray is, is telling her, sorry, um, Fletcher is telling the story and uh and ray's just kind of taking it in and um and slowly revealing who has the upper hand and uh, fletcher thinks he's got them over a barrel uh and that they can't uh, take action against him but you know it's it's it, there's more wheels within wheels uh, as the story unfolds and it's interesting seeing all the the uh the various things that befall them as they go along and then there's also a a, a bunch of um you know tweed tracksuit wearing uh, hoodlums who take out one of the marijuana farms and they're under the tutelage of coach played by Colin Farrell who's not actually a gangster but he runs a boxing gym and and uh the uh the fighters under his uh under his watchful eye uh, are making videos and and working scams and and he's got to step in and you know make make his end of things all right so there's a lot of different things at play here and i felt it did a pretty good job of keeping all the balls in the air as it went along we also michelle dockery plays uh, michael pearson's wife rosalind she's also a formidable character she runs his uh high-end car refurbishment uh business it's a it's a high-end garage and a, possibly a chop shop i don't think they go into too much detail about that but but she's a she's a formidable character to deal with as well and plays an interesting part in the course of the story, uh, more so than a lot of female characters in Guy Ritchie films uh, past. So, yeah, so yeah. she's she's a welcome presence here for sure. Oh, absolutely! I really like Michelle Dockery. I, my yeah. pretty much all I know her from is is Downton Abbey, and she really shines in her scenes here as as Pearson's sort of tough Cockney confidant who runs that garage. Uh, I think the movie could use more of her in it. Yes, um, and more of them together too. Yeah, I think they're pretty good together. Yeah, and uh, I think the film is full of zip and very foul mouthed and stuffed with monologues and armed standoffs and the regular, you know, hilarious and unintended consequences of violence uh and there are lots of you know sprawling ensemble cast you mentioned a lot of those players i was great to see the brief presence of elliot sumner child of sting and film producer trudy styler uh and a talented musician in their own right they're the the junkie offspring of one of pearson's wealthy partners great to see them oh, right okay yeah yeah um i think the film i like the film a lot like i think that uh guy Ritchie fans and anybody who's interested in this kind of thing should definitely check it out i think mcconaughey feels kind of uncommitted here and i feel like the mcconaughey is kind of over and uh, you get the sense these days he's kind of coasting on his charm and his talent which is fine but I think his smooth, slightly stone persona is is suffused into all of his roles, and I think he needs to find a way to surprise us again. Maybe playing a rich weed dealer isn't it. Um, <laughs> Weirdly, he's strangely absent from a lot of the proceedings, even though he's like supposedly the central character because everything revolves around this deal that he's trying to broker. Uh, it's mostly about all the other things that are in action. Then he shows shows up to 
kind of move the plot onto the next level in a way. But but a lot of it's like between Charlie and the gang members and you know the other uh, powers that are trying to take this piece of the action. So at least he's not that much of a hindrance to this one here. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. When he and uh, Hugh Grant sort of paired up to do the junkets and promote this film, they looked so awkward together. (laughs) It was just an odd mix of people. Um, But uh, anyway, let's move on to one more film in this segment, The Wrath of Man from 2021. It's also on Netflix. It got next to no release in North America, which is too bad because this is actually a pretty solid Guy Ritchie film. It's a little more serious than some of his other. It's based on a French film called Cash Truck or Le Covoyer. Um, here uh, we've got Statham as Mr. Hill or H. Uh, he's a hard man of a classic variety wandering through this picture like he's done so many, a variation of every ca- any character that Chuck Bronson or Norris played. Um, here he joins an armored car company that's seeing a spate of holds up holdups like, you know, that scene in heat, except over and over, over again. And, over. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, in, in many ways, this movie does remind me of heat, not quite as sophisticated, but pretty stylish. Nonetheless, we get a culture of this company. It's 95% male with the usual homophobic, homoerotic vibes. Um, and it becomes clear that H is on a mission, but why and for whom he's, he's a ruthless killer and he will brook no distractions from He's trying to find somebody amongst the the gangs that are are trying to hold up these trucks. Um, And he's got a trauma in his past. And we get these chapter headings and all of a sudden we flash back to the to things that happened in the weeks preceding his joining this company, including the death of his son. We see a holdup of a cash truck from three different perspectives from inside the truck, from the bystanders, from the thieves. And it turns out that H is also working with the feds. All of this plot wise is a little confusing. I won't, I won't <laughs> lie to you, but the core of it, it's just a revenge thriller with a solid cast. And I did enjoy the shifting time chapters and the casting, um, Holt McCallany, Josh Hartnett, again, Scott Eastwood, Andy Garcia, Eddie Marzan again, and the very many warehouses of Los Angeles. It's got a, you really see the grungy or back alley parts of, of LA and it has a great score, a lot of doomy intensity. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a solid little thriller and maybe a bit heavier than we've come to expect from Richie. Uh, you know, you've got, you've got still, it's got the funny nicknames like Josh Hartnett's character is called boy sweat, but, uh, otherwise this is, uh, this Hello, is a good Bob. One. Yeah. <laughs> this is a pretty good one. I think from him. Yeah, it's it's enjoyable on a kind of a purely visceral level. I I, I don't uh, sometimes I feel like it's jumping around in time for the sake of jumping around in time to the point where uh, n- not every time jump or flashback is announced as such, and you're trying to think you know, where you are in the film. And, and uh, I don't know that it needs to be as obfuscating as it is. Although the the, the idea of seeing the heist from three different perspectives is kind of kind of interesting. And um, Statham. Not as there's not a whole lot to his character here. Uh, not that there is in a lot of his films, but I feel like uh, he's pretty taciturn and uh, just kind of does that, does his state thing without bringing a lot of uh, interesting, uh, interesting nuances or traits to, to that particular character. But you know, it's it's serviceable. And uh, and again, you know, Hartnett plays kind of a creepy jerk, so it's kind of fun to see him you know, play a pretty unlikable character who turns out, you know, when, when the going gets tough, he completely 
falls apart, which is also kind of fun. Uh, I like that aspect of it. Uh, I, I don't. I think it's maybe less than some of its parts, but there, there's some fun stuff. You know, if you like heist movies, it's no crisscross, but as armored car heist movies go, it's it, it's certainly worth your time if you like that sort of thing. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Okay, on this final segment of Lends Me Your Ears for this episode on the films of Guy Ritchie, we have two, I confess to say, lesser films in his catalog, um, neither of which were beloved by critics, though I think one of them at least did well at the box office. Not this one that we're going to start with. No. Swept Away from 2002 was written by Guy Ritchie. It's based on a film by Lena Wertmuller. Uh, from 1974, same title, I believe. And I've never seen the the Wirt Miller movie, but you've you've seen it, haven't you, Stephen? Yeah, I've seen it. It's uh, uh, I remember Giancarlo Giannini was in. I'm, it was one of the first subtitled movies I ever saw. I think on TV in this case. I think it was either on PBS or CBC late at night, and uh, you know, basically about a, a rich socialite and uh, and uh, a communist um, uh, crew member on a on a yacht wind up on a desert island it's and there's this battle of wills and it gets into a lot of politics and a lot of uh, a lot of feminism from uh, from Lena Wertmuller's perspective and uh you know I watched it as a kid thinking that maybe it was going to be kind of sexy and it, it it sort of was but it was it was really more about the the dialectic between these two polarized characters um you know on who are polarized in terms of both uh both uh, sex and uh, politics and and seeing them kind of come to some sort of middle ground over the course of the film. And, uh, and, uh, so it's an odd choice for a remake. I think uh, the original was very much of its time in terms of, of where politics and sexual politics were at, at that point. And, and, and I think it uh, reflects that era very well. Uh, this, I, it, it seemed like an odd choice for, for both uh, Guy Ritchie and Madonna to tackle. They were of course married at the time, uh, I'm not sure if the film had anything to do with the breakup of that marriage. I suspect maybe it did. Well, they actually but... stayed together till like 2008. So, oh, okay. so we got well, six we go. years after this. But yeah. yeah, it is an odd one eh, for the two of them to do. It, it, basically, three wealthy couples, they fly to Italy. They take a vacation on a yacht. Madonna's Amber is very unpleasant. She's a capitalist. We're constantly reminded. She's married to Bruce, Bruce Greenwood's Tony. Also on board is Jean Triplehorn and a very young Elizabeth Banks. Uh, three couples, um, you know, they're amongst them. And uh, we spent a lot of time with a crew member, Pepe, played by Adriano Giannini, who really can't stand Amber. Of course, the two of them end up together on a sort of stranded on a boat and then on a desert island. Uh, and I can't, I have to admit the conversations about money and class echoes, it it feels like the recent Triangle of Sadness, although Triangle of Sadness is a lot better movie. Uh, I was reminded of that as well. It's yeah, like... seems strange. But anyway, I guess this is kind of one of those things that, that keeps echoing and keeps going through uh, the storytelling and films from time to time. Um, yeah, and I mean, a lot of, Madonna was criticized pretty heavily for this film and her performance. It's... 
you know, I, I, I'm reluctant to blame the actor when the performances aren't stellar because the director on the day should inspire them with, you know, and with the editor to find the best takes to piece the performance together on film. But uh, it is, it does, it's not great. It's not great. Yeah, I don't know. When the director and the star are married, it's it was only his third film. I forgot this was only his third film. Like this right. is the one he made right after Snatch, and that it was kind of a it created a hole that he had to dig himself out of. Madonna never came back to him to a major leading role in any sort of way, and you know maybe it's just one of those things where he didn't want to be criticizing his wife's performance on the set i don't i don't really know it's it's only uh it's just under an hour and a half it 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 goes by pretty quickly oddly enough uh and i feel like maybe there are chunks missing because of the the transition from uh from the two characters on the desert island going from hating each other to becoming a couple feels awfully abrupt it Mm -hmm. feels like Either things weren't filmed or were left on the cutting room floor and and just to kind of move things along. And I feel like there's 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 something missing in in the film. It just seems like the leaps uh, are, are hard to take seriously. And that, I don't think it's necessarily performance based, but there are definitely changes in character that don't make a whole lot of sense in the context of this film. And and. Uh, and I feel like it's never going to get a director's cut or anything like that. I'm, I feel like, like maybe there are constraints uh, that they had to deliver something that was in the realm of ninety minutes, and and that uh, by the end of it, everyone just wanted to wash their hands of it. That's possible. It Absolutely. barely got released. So yeah, you know, uh, there is this mid-movie performance number where Madonna shows what she's got, and it's amazing. Actually, yeah, that I, part of it I really like. She doesn't actually sing, but she mimes along with the Della Reese version of "Come On in My House." Uh, and I thought that was awesome. And it reminded us, oh yeah, this is a professional performer who can really bring it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the politics are weird and her performance is odd. And it, by the end, it goes from sort of class comedy to melodrama and that shift never quite delivers. So, yeah. Yeah. And from what I gather, she walked onto the film set straight after a whole run of touring and that, uh, so there may not have been that kind of preparation or, or you know, that, uh, that uh, the the work that might have gone into making the character credible just wasn't able to happen. It just Madonna just showed up and was Madonna <laughs> as as, uh, as Amber. Because I, there are moments in the film where I I, I enjoy watching her performance, but uh, again the the transitions are fairly jarring uh, as we move through the course of the film, and it's it's hard to take certain things seriously when you don't really see how we got from point A to point B sort of thing. So. Uh, it, Unless you're really curious, uh, you'd be fine to give this one a pass. Yeah, and I would say the same about the next and final film that we're going to talk yes. about called Aladdin. Of course, it's it's the one of the spate of live-action adaptations of classic uh, or, or semi-classic Disney animations. Uh, of course, the uh, early 90s Aladdin starring Robin Williams uh, was incredible. I remember it well. I remember being amazed at his performance. This one came out, the remake came out in 2018, and I really disliked it. Um, it feels like an off-the-strip Vegas review <laughs> version of the uh, of the original. The songs that were so beloved in the first film feels like karaoke versions here. And instead of Robin Williams, who sadly had passed away by the time this film comes out, you've got Will Smith trying to take the role of the genie, um, you know, and do something different with it. And I guess he should be credited for, you know, that 
effort because, I mean, frankly, I mean, who's going to forget Robin Williams? I mean, that was the, he was a central reason that first film was so special. Yeah, talk about a thankless task. Yeah, yeah. But this one just feels like some kind of corporate fake cheesy facsimile. And unfortunately, of course, a lot of these remakes, these live action remakes feel that way because they've got that corporate Disney thing going on. It's it's pretty awful. I, I didn't like any of the performances. I didn't like any of the movie. It's just offensively bland. Um, the single performer I liked, who thought raised it, was former SNL uh, performer Nassim Pedrad. She plays Dahlia, the handmaiden who has a thing for the genie. Um, but, and, you know, and finally, I think that this kind of Hollywood exoticism is so 20th century. I mean, why do we do even do this anymore? Because we see that cultural appropriation just isn't cool. And yet this is still what they're doing. And it just feels, <laughs> it just feels stupidly offensive in a way that, uh, that I, I, yeah, I can't recommend this at all. Yeah. It's hard to believe this is only from a few years ago. Like it just, cause I mean, it's obviously a remake of a, of a cartoon from the nineties, but, uh, it just feels fairly retrograde I, I i didn't mind the leads uh egyptian canadian actor mena masood was fine as aladdin naomi scott was fine as as jasmine but the, the, they don't necessarily bring a lot of whole personal spark to their performances and and and, and uh having jafar being fairly unmenacing like he's i mean he's he's evil i guess but he, you know it certainly doesn't compare to the cartoon version uh and it's everything just feels like all the, the the edges have been sanded off and you've got a lot of uh, CGI kind of magic, you know, fairy dust or whatever you want to call it uh, in its place. And it, uh, uh, I think we've become so inured to that, that it just, just doesn't, uh, just doesn't work. On I like the carpet, the flying carpet. Yeah. That was okay. I really missed <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried. Right. That's the parrot. Right. <laughs> you know, Alan, Alan Tudyk does the parrot as, as more of a realistic parrot, but it's like, well, who, wants to see a realistic parrot in a Disney movie, you know, so, but I'm, maybe I'm biased in that regard. So. And so concludes our look at Guy Ritchie, who of course, gangster movie filmmaker, but can do a lot more than just that uh, and has done for better and occasionally for worse. Uh, thanks so much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears. We are available if you want to reach out to us. We have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter uh, as Lends Me Your Ears. Stephen, you're also on Twitter. Yes, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm on Twitter named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. we like to thank CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show lends me your ears every second tuesday at 5 p.m and thanks also to our producers at the village soundcast network for doing all that you do and thank you again for listening to us rabbit on uh hang out and uh and, you know talk about guy ritchie movies. talk about guy ritchie movies this, this, is, this has been a good time thank you Stephen. uh we'll be talking about movies again soon and uh and yeah and we'll uh well, hopefully uh, you'll be able to tune in and enjoy us. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.